everyone, and welcome to the Filene Fill-In. I'm Holly Fearing with Filene. The Filene Fill-In is the podcast where we fill you in on what's been going on here at Filene's home base and out and about in the financial services world. Join Taylor and me this episode in the podcast studio to get to know more about Filene Fellow Saiku Burmese. Saiku is an Associate Professor of Management at the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin and leads Filene's Research Center of Excellence for the War for Talent. We start with a discussion on the work he's doing as the lead researcher for the center. Sekou explains the complexities behind how we know that people are a business's most critical resource, but yet finding, hiring, and retaining top talent remains a critical obstacle for most organizations. In order to truly start at the start to address this issue, Sekou decided to spend the first couple of years focused on the attraction side of the equation. He sought to discover how credit unions can better attract top talent and has put a lot of thought and research into this issue for credit unions. Throughout the conversation, Sekou educates us on why attraction of top talent is such a big challenge, what might be the benefits of employee turnover, and how organizations should and should not be targeting different generations. Sekou believes that marketplaces are all about competition and wonders if credit unions are at a disadvantage with cooperation at their core. Taylor and I take a turn sharing our insights with Sekou for that discussion. Lastly, we have a chance to learn how Sekou himself got into his field of study and into the labor market through his various jobs and roles. Then we get to the rapid-fire questions about what he does when he's not being an academic, what others in his family do, what his favorite music artists are from the last handful of decades, what his favorite beer style is, and of course, which Filene research report is his kid's favorite. If you find yourself nodding your head along the way, you'll absolutely want to mark your calendar now to join Filene and Sekou in person at our Operations and Talent Research event on June 16th and 17th in Denver. Now, hang tight for a wide-ranging conversation that Sekou designates as perfect for the nerd in all of us. Okay, I'm just going to get started. And we're going to have to talk about some serious stuff now. Okay. <laughs> or do we? We'll get to the fun stuff at the end. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Serious. Thank you for being here, Seiku. And I want to jump right into talking a little bit about how you are a Filene Fellow for our Center for the War for Talent. Mm -hmm. For those of us that know and love the research that comes out of that center, we've read it all. But if somebody is listening that hasn't experienced the War for Talent yet, can you tell us a little bit about what this research is that you've been doing for the last couple of years with Filene? Have you been intending for me to have done research all this time? Oh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh, so the War for Talent Center uh, of Excellence is predicated around this idea that people are a critical resource. Your talent is a critical resource within organizations. And yet it's one of the critical obstacles or issues that a lot of companies face around how do you attract top talent once you have it? How do you make sure you're developing it? in a way that is best for the firm and the individual, and how do you minimize loss, uh, retain, and, and within that, a lot of other interesting questions that we've uh, delved into. And so we've been focused a lot on the attraction side of things the last couple of years, as that seemed to bubble up from the Research Council and talking to chief human resource executives and CEOs. This is one of the things that they saw as a bottleneck or a pain point. And so we've been trying to attack this question or look at the question of how can credit unions better or more efficiently attract top talent within different types of markets, with different kind of uh, strategies. And so that's been what a bulk, I think, of our the publications coming out of the center have been focused on the last few years. Sekou, can you tell us a little bit about why you think attraction is such an important challenge for credit unions in particular? What's the context for the difficulties around attracting top talent or competing for top talent? Yeah. So to be clear, attracting top talent is a big issue for all organizations. You, you know, in thinking about people, it's uh, there's a funnel. And at the top of that funnel is attraction. And then there's selection, and it whittles down, whittles down, till you get to the bottom of the funnel, which is the narrow piece. And so... If you do not get good in on the attraction side, the rest of it is, you know, kind of operating with one arm tied behind your back. So you want to maximize your ability to get people in on your radar in your applicant pool. For credit unions, uh, my assessment of that is 
that it's the competition. Who are you competing against? And oftentimes you're competing with people who are also thinking about going into other financial services kind of companies that are structured in a different way. Maybe the pay is higher or um, the status differential is different if they're coming out of an undergrad program and they're being pushed into certain areas. And then I think you're also kind of dealing with the fact that a lot of folks coming into the talent pool now have very different kind of desires than maybe they did before. And so trying to understand what motivates people when you are a an industry that has very specific sorts of uh, purposes, right? So that you have your hybrid organization, like you are your bank, but you're also a community service organization. How do you find people who really fit? And so I think the more complex an organization you are, the harder it is to figure out who would be good fits and attract people. Um, if you're just, you know, Monty Burns, the Springfield power plant, it's easy. It's like we're about destroying the environment and making as much money for Monty Burns as possible. It's easy to find good matches. But uh, the more complex an organization you are, I think the harder it becomes to find good talent. And that's probably particular to the credit union industry. How can that complexity be a resource or an asset? for credit unions or other hybrid organizations that have the business imperatives, but also the social mission attached to it? Yeah, I think we see the trend of how people are analyzing and evaluating companies is starting to change where before it was, who's going to pay me the most, who makes the most money. Now people care about, well, what are the, what is the philosophy, the underlying philosophy of this organization? What good are they doing? How are they as, as citizens? And uh, even CEOs of these companies are starting to realize, you know, shareholder maximization is not our sole purpose anymore. We should be more focused on other things. So I see that as the market and the talent pool is starting to care about things that credit unions have been doing well for a long time. So you're already where the market is going. And so... It's an opportune time to recognize that advantage, recognize that you can say, hey, this is not something that we just started doing five years ago because we saw people thought it was important. It's like, we've always been doing this. This is genuine. This is the lifeblood. This is tied into our entire culture. That should be a competitive advantage on the on the labor market. And so I think it's exciting to think about how credit unions can maybe benefit from this shift that we see in general. And when we think about that, that question around what motivates potential employees to consider a credit union, to apply to a credit union, to actually take the job in the credit union, and then to stay with the credit union. You know, one of the big topics of conversation is around differences, generational differences, Mm -hmm. differences in age. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, from the literature, from your own research, what are the kinds of things that really motivate young people in the labor market? Yeah, this is one of those, uh, every time I read another study, it says something slightly different. Um, Give me like a top five. What are are the things? (laughs) So the biggest thing I can tell you is if you look at the ranking of what's important from people who entered the labor market in the 90s and those that are entering in the 2010s, they care about the same five things. There's not much change. So when people say, oh, millennials care much more, they don't care about money. Eh, not really. They care about money, right? They're just, the way they think about money is different because their debt load is different, you know? And so they actually do care about money. Um, They care about stability. They care about the future, the career progression opportunities. um, And they care about the efficacy of their work, that they can make a difference. It's pretty much the same as it's been for a long time. So in that way, I think trying to say, here's what millennials care about versus Gen X, I think that's a bit of fool's gold. I I wouldn't recommend going down that path. But what I do think we see that's different is the way they see their career laying out versus the way other people saw their careers laying out. Mm -hmm. So the idea, even when I went out on the market in the 90s, you know, I'd say like, well, I'll be at one place maybe five, six years. And that to me was like, I don't want to be a dilettante, right? So I got to do at least five, six years. And now five, six years would be like, oh, wow, you're a veteran at that place if you stay that long. And so that is not about the fact that they care any less about money or perceive. It's just they see their career as this ladder that jumps around uh, a bunch. And so recognizing that's a big change, whereas uh, the restlessness, um, 
people want to move, even if it's not upwards. I think people entering the labor market now want to see some kind of progression in their careers much faster than people would expect to see that in the past. And so that's, I think, a big difference generationally. And then all the other generational stuff, you know, they uh, dress differently and they uh, are less formal or more, you know, all the things that every generation has with every other generation, <laughs> you know, those get those, you know, get off my lawn, you kids with your high water pants or whatever it might be. So right, that kind of stuff, um, which I think will always be forever. Um, the older folks will think the younger folks are foolish and what they wear and how they talk. But from an HR perspective, I think that's kind of the biggest difference I see is how people view their careers and what that means for how you should engage with them. And this is something that you've written about for Filene. So tell us a little bit about the the benefits of turnover, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think when you say that young people or millennials, not so young anymore, see their careers unfolding in a different way so that they're not at the same employer mm-hmm. forever. And part of that's structural, right? Yep. The labor market's just changed. Yep. Um, and some of it is, you know, expectations or, and desires, aspirations for employees, for workers, but a lot of your research suggests that that could be a good thing, both yeah. for the company and for the worker. Correct. So the worker side, I think, is <clears throat> pretty straightforward. People like um, to see themselves as getting various types of experiences, and a company is going to be limited in the types of experiences it can provide to any one uh, individual. And so unless you're working for a huge multinational where, you know, you can jump around, live in different places, do different types of work, that normally doesn't happen. But for firms and thinking about turnover, um, aside from the fact that some sorts of turnover are just good, renewal, having new people, new ideas uh, kind of coming through, making sure you're picking up on trends, you are adjusting your demographic makeup to match that of your partners, your your customer base. But then on top of that, there's a signal about when people leave, where do they go, what do they do, how what they gained from working at your firm impacts how far they go in other places. And this is alumni effects, right? So alumni networks. And I think law firms and a lot of professional service firms have keyed in on this for quite some time. So I used to work at Deloitte Consulting and they track me down, still send me emails. Hey, we're having a gathering in Austin, come out. And just They just want to know what their former consultants are doing. And for them, I think they realized pretty early on, people that used to work here end up working at places that are potential clients. So of course we want to stay in contact because then we can potentially sell work and the like. And so they're very formalized, but there are a lot of firms that do not formalize their alumni networks because I don't think they recognize the value that's there. And what I find interesting, and Reed Hoffman, the CEO of LinkedIn, has noted this about the number of self-organized alumni groups that just crop up on LinkedIn without any corporate intervention. So it's people who are former workers at X company just get together on LinkedIn just to share ideas. And there's thousands of them, right, that are just cropping up on their own. So if I'm uh, you know, an executive at a company and I see, hey, people who used to work here feel want to continue to identify with the company, that should be a signal that, oh, this is valuable in some way. This is important. And so we should be involved in in, in some way. And so I think that's a, a direction I see more companies starting to go into. And so this has been something that I'm trying to preach to credit unions to say, you develop an alumni network. Not only do you get boomerang people that come back, but you also have now these advocates that are out there in really disparate kind of areas. And they can be your your advocates out there saying like, oh, I started in a credit union, or I worked at this credit union, and I loved it, and you know now I'm doing this, but I really loved it, and send people there, send recommendations there, and the like. And that's a tangible benefit that credit unions can benefit from. And credit unions benefit both institutionally, it's like individual institutions can benefit from that kind of al- alumni effect, but the system as a whole benefits, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things anecdotally that we see a lot is people make the jump into a credit union or they start their careers in a credit union. And even though they may not stay at that credit union, 
they stay in the system. Yeah. Right? So there's a lot of movement within the system, but not necessarily outside of the credit union system to uh, other sectors, right? Yeah. Whether it's commercial banking or, or even outside of financial services. Mm-hmm. So that kind of alumni effect also accrues to a sector or to an industry, potentially. Yeah, no, this is true. Is that there's an ecosystem, right, that um, I realized having going to GAC and some of these conferences and realizing like, oh, this is, you know, the credit union industry touches on fintech and it touches on, uh, you know, payment technology. It touches on a lot of different areas. Uh, and then even speaking with CEOs in their local areas, they're like, well, we're working with community development. We're working with local municipalities. Um so you can imagine if you have people who are doing this work and then they start working for the city, start working for the state, those are relationships you want to maintain. Um, and uh, I think it's useful for the credit union as a whole to say, like, hey, we have people who believe in cooperative kind of mindset that are all over. And so bringing them in and also getting information from them can also be valuable. Learning from your alumni. Stay tuned because Sekou has recently worked on a research project that yeah tests this hypothesis <laughs> yeah. with the credit union and that report will be forthcoming yeah. uh, very soon so please check it out yeah please do i wanted to ask about the millennial issue since you guys were kind of talking about it and i feel like there's a little bit of an elephant in the room whenever businesses talk about attracting millennials now because first of all millennials are not the youngest generation anymore. Nope. Um, they are not even technically that young at all, and they're just kind of regular people. And so you're saying they. <laughs> I think you should probably say we. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. <laughs> at least two of three of us in this room are millennials by definition. So, but I mean, it, it's it's irksome to millennial generations to be talked about as though they're an other or, you know, and it's, mm. it's, it's an interesting uh, thought to me around like the surface level attraction, like, oh, I think millennials like ping pong tables. Let's like, let's, I mean, and that's kind of a, a little bit of a older surface level thinking about this, but what do you say to the businesses that are in the right headspace of wanting to attract the younger generations, but how do they actually do that in a meaningful way? If I may, yeah. the one thing that drives me crazy about this talk is the idea that a perk, like a pool table, will m- make the decision for you, right? Like, no, what's going to make the decision for you is a living wage and decent benefits and, like, a low commute time and yep. good work-life balance and respect like from your manager. Yeah. Wait a second. Yeah, <laughs> that just sounds like a really good job. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, go ahead, Sigrid. <laughs> Taylor, tell us what you really think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Yes, so I I agree with you that this idea of, oh, the millennials, let's focus on millennials. Some of it is driven by, there's a lot of people with that have built whole practices on training companies to deal with millennial problems. Mm -hmm. And so they're (laughs) out (laughs) with their millennial issue. Um, And so uh, we've had this even at University of Texas about them coming in and you know, I look at that and I was like, I've seen the research. I just, I don't really kind of buy this. But there are a lot of people pushing this um, argument because they have vested interests in dividing and making this seem like a problem so they can sell mm-hmm. certain things. So that aside, I think kind of what Taylor said, which is you generally want to have, you want to be attracting, again, the funnel, right? So you want to, at the top of the organization, or this might be at the bottom, but you want to attract a lot of people into the entry-level positions and some are going to leave, which is going to happen naturally, but some are going to move up. So the real big thing is who are our future leaders? And so recognizing that what might attract a 21-year-old to start here and what gets them socialized into this is the way we do things, don't you want to run a company like this one day, is going to be different than someone that's in the middle of their career in XYZ. So you do need to segment people mm-hmm. um, based on where they are in their careers. But what they like is going to be remarkably consistent with what people starting a new job in the 1990s wanted, which is, I feel like I'm wanted here. I like the culture. I feel like I'm a future. I feel like I'm valued. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, And people can sense that um, if it's genuine or not pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. anyone can. And so, yeah, I'm with you. Putting a pool table or doing very surface level things probably isn't um, useful. However, rethinking the way you um, 
set up your workspace can be valuable, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, so if you're a place that has um, offices and they're closed and there's kind of one, it, it looks like a, you know, or it looks like a cubicle uh, farm. Yeah, that might turn off someone who has been working in spaces that look very different. Mm-hmm. And so you do want to be mindful of that. Um, but that's so that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a productive place, not because it's a mm, kind of one-off or a perk or something like that. And what about, um, especially relevant for credit unions, we hear a lot of the time, and, and maybe it's just a stereotype, but that younger generations prioritize working at places that have a social mission or that their work has a purpose. Do you think that that's actually different than any generation amongst younger generations? And if so, you know, how can credit unions maybe better leverage that? Yeah. So this is, again, one of those things I read studies and the studies of different people that run them with different agendas. Mm -hmm. So you always have to be careful when you see a new study has been published who ran this study? Oh, it's some consulting company. That's tra- okay. Well, they have a. Um, but the academic studies that I look at show the movement here is not as drastic as I think people make it out to be. That said, I think there is a shift in um, a general discussion about the purpose of organizations. Some of it is born from wrongdoing, like companies that are exploitative, companies that don't seem to be behaving in the best interests of greater society. And so if you are a good citizen and if you do care, I think that puts you in better company. You're better evaluated by a, a larger group of stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So your employees feel proud that they work there. Your partners are there. You have people who want maybe want to sponsor things that you're doing because you're doing great work. And from that, I think you just get this virtuous cycle of people like being affiliated with what you're doing. And so that's really where I think the benefit is. And one of those benefits is you're looked at more positively by potential employees, but the benefits are all over the place. And so it's got to be a holistic kind of shift to where we want to be good for the purposes of, we honestly think idealistically or ideologically that we should be doing this. And then there's benefits to it. But if you do it for the benefits, I think then that's when you run into some trouble. Right. It's about producing an authentic commitment to mission or, or demonstrating an authentic commitment to being a good citizen, having social impact. And credit unions have that kind of in their DNA, or at least yeah. in their history, traditionally, mm-hmm. um, but don't always communicate it. Mm. And so I think there's real runway, there's real opportunity for credit unions to be more proactive and more vocal about the work that they are doing and the work that they want to do going forward. And with some of the spillover effects into the talent discussion. Uh, I have a question mm-hmm. or an observation. You're going to turn the know. table. I'm going to turn the table on you guys. So this is my business school. I'm putting my business school hat on. You know, markets are about competition. And that is kind of the underlying um, way people think about you have to win. You have to use your competitive advantage to try and win. Credit unions and the credit union industry is based on cooperative principles. But at some point, this idea of we are doing something that differentiates us so that we can win, you know, there's a comp- competitive aspect to this. And I don't think it aligns well with the cooperative principles of the industry. So we want to grow. We want to be better. But we're not going to throw anyone under the bus. We're not going to draw any differences that's going to make someone else look bad. That's not what we do. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, is this a, not a self-limiting, but is this a constraining aspect of the cranium, which means it, it, will, it will never be aggressive, it will never be overtly competitive with other sectors, markets, what have you. It will always try and be helpful and positive and cooperative, and how that might be a, a limiting factor, I guess, if I'm speaking plainly. So what do, you, what do you guys think about that? For cooperatives in general, you're saying? I think cooperatives in general and credit unions are just one example of that. Mm-hmm. I honestly think cooperative business model works best when it is the one version of a cooperative in a landscape of, for me, it makes more sense to think about it as a a food cooperative. So you've got a variety of different types of places to buy your food. There can be a number of different corporate grocery stores. And then 
per community, if there is an option to have a cooperative grocery store, then I think of the citizens of that community being able to choose the cooperative version. And then everybody collectively puts in resources to make that successful. The difficulty is then when there's two cooperative grocery stores in one community, and then um, they're not standing out as like differentiating by their model, but they have to compete on a different level. And I think credit unions very much so often are in competition with each other within the same community. I think the idea of a cooperative started when there were four things and three were exploitative. And then here's the option that's not exploitative. Yeah, I think that the competitive dynamics in cooperative finance have changed pretty dramatically over the past few decades. It's clear that early on, or at least through the first kind of half to three quarters of the credit union system's existence in the United States, so through the 70s, you saw very little competition between credit unions. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had very clearly defined fields of membership that did not overlap, even like legally. Mm -hmm. And so you had a ready-made market. You knew who your members were. It was very obvious. You had no... The strategic conversation was almost unnecessary. Yeah, it's it was, like the teachers. That's right. The teach, you know, where the cafeteria, uh, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, no, the, you know, the folks at this military base, the folks at this employer, the folks who belong to this It was provided church. as your resource. For, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the goal wasn't to grow necessarily. The goal was to provide responsible financial services to those people. And that was it. To the degree that you could grow to be able to enhance those services, that was good, right? Uh, but the goal wasn't growth in and of itself. It was growth to uh, social ends. Okay. I think that that's frankly changed um, for a variety of reasons, some way outside the hands of individual credit unions or individual credit union managers. The financial services landscape you know, changed pretty dramatically starting in the 80s. Some of that was deregulation. Some of it was globalization. And credit unions had to adapt to be able to continue to serve their members with responsible financial services, or else they were simply going to disappear mm. um, in, in the face of uh, deregulation and consolidation at the okay. same time. Right. So financial service, you know, credit unions are facing a great deal of institutional consolidation, but that's true for financial services as a whole. Yeah, yeah. And in some cases, that's true for whole entire industrial sectors in sure. the United States. So I think that those pressures have changed the cooperative, competitive, cooperative <laughs> dynamic, right? Cooperation. Cooperation yeah. between uh-huh. credit unions. Yeah. So you do have really clear examples of credit unions all of a sudden facing a strategic question that they've never had to face before, which is we have much broader potential fields of membership and we need to make a choice about who within that field of membership is going to be our target mm-hmm. member. Mm-hmm. And so credit unions that operate with overlapping fields of membership, in some sense, have a new dynamic. When before, they could essentially collude mm-hmm. to say, these are our folks, those are your folks. Now it has to emerge through this kind of competitive market dynamic where they're figuring out, okay, this particular segment of the population, that's going to be our target. And other folks are like, well, we need to find a different niche because we don't necessarily want to go head to head, right? Yeah. And so it's that cooperative dynamic. Yeah. Imagine how powerful and what a strategic differentiation it could be if a community with, let's say, three credit unions all work together to say, I take this type of member, I take this type of member, I take this type of member, They, or like, you know, however they want to divide it up, but they figure that out, they agree on it, and then collectively can have three times the presence, three times the marketing, the awareness, and you're never going to see Bank of America and Wells Fargo joining forces to mm-hmm. work together. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one of their only uh, levers to pull that no one else can pull. And then it just helps them talk about their mission and be something that's a different choice. I think we need to emphasize that for those that care about having a different type of choice for their financial services, that you know highlight that and say, of course, you can go to all these other places for all these other reasons. We're not going to be, we're not going to have more ATMs than Wells Fargo, for mm-hmm. example. But mm-hmm. um, 
but if you care about like the way we're doing business, like here, here's the way we are presenting ourselves. It might be refreshing. It's not going to be for everyone, but I think that's their only power to like turn the tables on that, that unfortunate like uh, evolution of the way it's competition among cooperatives now. And I think it's even more heightened in the labor market. Yeah. Where credit unions are, you know, what's interesting is that their member owners are all, that's also their talent pool in many ways, Mm -hmm. not always, Mm -hmm. but in many, many ways, right. They're drawing from their kind of membership pool, potential membership pool for employees. And so you get an even heightened competitive dynamic among credit unions. So one of the things I always tell them, and I think I learned this from you, Mm -hmm. was that you're not just competing with other financial institutions for talent. You need to be looking well outside financial services for the kind of talent that might be really successful at your credit union. You know, look for the folks with technology experience, look for Mm -hmm. folks, you know, for example, just had a social work, right? Who can be frontline staff who Mm -hmm. really get it. Uh, there's a whole range of areas where you can be drawing talent yeah. from. Yep. Speaking of talent, I think it's apropos of this topic to hear a little bit more about your background and how you even got into this being your life's work. It's a calling. It's a calling. One day, uh, a bird appeared on my <laughs> windowsill and <laughs> it told me, finally, no. Um, so how far back? Well, I just, I I mean, like, at at what point did you decide this would be your field of study? Yeah, it's pretty clear you're, you're thinking about this stuff all the time. You ask really in-depth cutting kinds of questions. Was that always kind of a part of who you were? Tell us a little bit about before you went to graduate school. Like, how did you start thinking that research? Or is it just all about the money? Yeah, the money. Once I saw there was money in this thing. Yeah, (laughs) the the, the money. Um, So it was an engineer and a past life. So the idea of thinking about systems and solving problems has always been something I've been intrigued by. I became a management consultant, went to the dark side, but discovered the system of organizations. And that fascinated me. Internally, I was fascinated about how consulting firms worked, how they made sense of this. It seemed like a mess. I remember seeing how much I was being charged out as mm-hmm. my hourly rate and saying, how is this possible? I don't know anything. How, how are they paying this? <laughs> and so I was like, well, there's got to be, you know, trust and legitimate. And, you know, there's all these social dynamics around these projects. And uh, the big thing that really got me thinking about this, and I didn't realize it at the time when it happened, but in grad school, looking back now, I see this kind of shaped a lot of things. So uh, I was working at Deloitte when um, Enron thing happened. And so all of the big four at the time were splitting the audit and the consulting because Anderson showed us that hmm, when you have those two together, bad things may happen. And so Ernst & Young did it. Coopers did it. And so Deloitte was up next. So I was there at the time. And so there was all this discussion around, well, if these audit partners leave, this is how much they are valued. And if this partner leaves, and so they were trying to split it up so that it was even, and they were assigning, you know, millions of dollars to a single person going with the audit side versus consulting side. And I, this, so this fascinated me with saying like, so this one person, <laughs> this firm is worth $5 million. Is that, is that true? And I was like, you know, you know, if that moves a needle on a sale point and all those other things, then it is true. And so I realized a lot of this was just, um, social evaluation. I, if I believe you're worth $5 million, then you're worth $5 million. And so a lot of my research is born from the idea that the value we place on people is a bit of a social construction. It's a bit of how do I value things in general? And then I place that value on individuals. And because it's messy, I, I can never really get a good sense. So a lot of social factors go into how I evaluate people. And anytime social factors come in, biases come in and kooky things happen. And so I like studying kooky things. And so it was being in a professional services context where people were so critical to the valuation of the firm that got me thinking about that question. And so now I just apply, you know, social scientific methods on understanding this piece of how people are valued, um, how now I've also gotten into how people value organizations as well. And those uh, those perceptions and evaluations. And so that's that's a bit of the story, I think. So, I mean, one of the key insights there that you just you kind of passed over really quickly, but that valuation, the creation of value is a two way street. 
Mm. So it's not just about what value the firm, you know, measures, creates, extracts out of its people, but it's also about the value that people place on firms. Yeah, and so uh, one of the reasons I'm in Madison, the other reasons because I love you guys, but the other reason I'm in Madison is there was a uh, conference um, that was an extension from a larger conference, uh, and this group was about 30 of us, and it was focused on people studying human capital, strategic human capital, which I'm kind of in, and studying entrepreneurship, which I'm also kind of in through uh, some of my collaborations with students and and co-authors, and how those two areas need to speak more to one another. One of the questions that we, we focused on was, Human capital, or the, the study of talent has always been about, all right, I'm a worker. I'm going to go work at this company. What is the value that I'm going to get from the company? And I'm going to measure how much value am I going to give, right? And so how much am I going to work towards very specific skills to this company that are only going to be useful to this company and are not going to help me other places? So I'm willing to do that. With entrepreneurship, you have no idea what the reward is going to be because you don't know if this venture is going to be around yet. Entrepreneurs have to convince people to invest themselves in very firm-specific kind of things. And so the interesting part is at the very beginning, when you're bringing people into this new venture, how what criteria are you using? How is that negotiation happening? And it's not just equity. A lot of people, there's very few equity partners. A lot of people are actually being convinced to come in, take a pay cut, work for a new startup. And it gets into a lot of the same questions that they have to believe in the venture, they have to believe in X, Y, Z. And so is it good then to have a good communicator as your founder? Because you need to convince people, but maybe that good communicator is not a good manager, <laughs> is doesn't have the skills to grow the, you know, and so getting into um, a bit of that. And so I find that that negotiation to be really interesting and entrepreneurship is one area where it's good, but I think in the credit union industry is another area where there's some interesting dynamics going on as to what I'm willing to give, what the company's willing to give, and that that back and forth. Well, and it feels like that you moved into this academic side of the work because you wanted more purpose in the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then that story you just told, it makes me think that there maybe is a lot more to it, at least with your um, personal identity connecting to the type of work mm-hmm. might have more of a sway than than we really think. Um, so I, I was joking about I was joking but not joking about the calling thing. Um, I love being an academic. Um, I particular I didn't know you could be an academic in business school. Like that was mm-hmm. a I was like oh someone pointed out a mentor pointed that out to me when I was at Deloitte and kind of trying to figure out what my next step was going to be. I was like you should do this and uh, I love being able to study as a social scientist, study organizations, and then translate that to help people. And it's always a little dicey because, and I tell this to my students, like, you have, you must use these powers for good and not for evil. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder if they actually do that. At least when I work with credit unions, I know if I teach you how to get people better, you know, or to retain people, I know that it's for the greater good. Now I'm sounding, I, you can tell I've been reading Harry Potter. It's yeah. for, uh, <laughs> reading Harry Potter to my kids, uh, that it's for that greater good. And so that really, for me, um, and the reason I love working with Filene is that it does kind of hit on all of my all of my interests and that purpose piece really kind of comes out. So awesome. I have a question around you mentioned entrepreneurship. We've talked a little bit about the, you know, what's the attraction of working in particular industries over other industries, why the credit union system, not the credit union system. Mm-hmm. I I wonder to what degree do you think people are motivated to work in such an uncertain line of work like a startup? Mm-hmm. Is part of it, do you think, the social context that kind of accrues to entrepreneurship in this country or in this moment in time? Like, tell me a little bit about, you think there's some kind of social or cultural aspect of being in the startup or, you know, being, being an, an entrepreneur, entrepreneur right? Yeah, that, that, startup, you know, there's kind of like a kind of cool schumpeterian, you know, factor. kind of cool thing, mm-hmm. right, that goes along with, with that. Do you think that's one of the motivations? Absolutely. Um, and so uh, I've recently taken over as the academic director for the entrepreneurship minor at University of Texas. And uh, so we're about helping undergrad students minor and, and study and, and, and work on being entrepreneurial. So part of it is definitely an image. I want to be like Mark Zuckerberg, which I guess after maybe not, the, maybe yeah, not, maybe so, not maybe exactly, not so <laughs> but you know, they, they want to be that. And so for at UT, it's Michael Dell, right? So he was a student at UT. 
he founded Dell Computers mm-hmm. at, at UT. And so that's kind of the image that they see. So some of that is there. For others, I think it's it's uh, actually interested in doing something new that is not currently being done in a large kind of company and recognizing that the structure. So if you are interested in biotechnology, you would not work at a large company because large companies, in essence, buy new biotechnology from small companies. And so mm-hmm. if I really want to work on at the root in the lab developing new things, I'm probably more likely to want to go to a startup because that's where they're taking more risks and taking more chances. Um, so I think there's some of that. But then the other part of it, which I'm, I haven't figured out how to make this argument to the undergrads, but to recognize that a vast majority of what we call entrepreneurs are not what we think of when we call entrepreneurs. They're not high growth, high tech. I want to IPO. That's a small, small percentage of people who are actually entrepreneurs. Most mm-hmm. entrepreneurs are small business owners. Right. They own the beauty parlor down the street. And They've that got the print is shop yeah. next door, right? And yeah. so that requires still understanding how business works, understanding how to get startup capital, how to turn that in. And so for me, I think a, a, a personal mission I have in my position is to get people to recognize that entrepreneurship means a lot of different things. And so it can mean I want to provide a service to a certain given community. There's no, you know, people who are like, we're, I live in a food desert. I want to start uh, a fruit stand in this certain place. And I'm going to make it viable so that I can earn a living. But I also want in. So a lot of these small businesses are purpose-driven and, and the like. And so some of it can be just I care more about the impact of what I do versus, you know, being part of something larger. And, you know, so I think that's also a part of it. On the human capital side, what, you know, when you think about those kinds of small business enterprises, and many credit unions are small businesses, a lot of credit unions, most credit unions are small businesses. What are the kind of entrepreneurial skills, mindsets, you know, what on the human capital side, what do you need to know? What can you learn from that kind of entrepreneurship literature to help, you know, make your business viable, make it socially responsible, make it grow? Yeah. So a couple of things, and this is top of mind, thankfully. Um, so one is thinking about the social networks. Where are you going to find these people? <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you're doing something new and you're small, you, it's not like you can say like, well, I can find someone else who has done this job and worked at a similar type of company mm-hmm. and hire them. Because you're probably doing it and you're probably unique. Otherwise, why are you starting this firm? And so you have to find people. You can't just use the, I'll I'll have the experience doing this and then I'll hire you. You have to find people who haven't had this experience. So what now are you using? What criteria are you utilizing to bring people in? Aside from, I like them. They're my friend. I went to school with them, which is how a lot of people kind of put this together. So being a little smarter around what are the criteria you can use when A, you can't pay people much or anything, and B, what you're trying to do, you don't even know what you're trying to do yet. So you don't know what skills and knowledge you need yet. Um, So uh, a big interesting question, this is still an open question within the research is, most new ventures are very informal. They kind of just pull their friends together. And at a certain point, they have to get more formalized. What does that transition look like? And how do you know when it's time to say, all right, let's get some HR practices in. Let's start to interview in a way. You know, startups are like, hey, you meet with the founder, talk to you, founder likes you, you got a job. That gets you to a certain point. And then you're like, well, that, that, that can't work anymore. Even Google realized, you know, we can't have the founders talking to every single new hire because we're hiring 10,000 people. You know, so mm-hmm. um, that part, I think, is is a really interesting piece where entrepreneurship research and and human capital or talent research can really inform one another in kind of cool ways. What are some of the topics of research that you've got on your plate right now that's like hot off the presses that we can give our listeners like a lead or preview into? A teaser? Yeah. Uh, so on the filing side, we have two two projects uh, coming up. One, uh, looking at this idea of signaling about your alumni in your job applications as a way to attract uh, more and better, potentially better, higher quality applicants. Um, I forgot where we titled that one. I like winning by losing, but uh, That's I don't nice. know. That's nice. We'll that call it winning by winning losing. Winning by losing. I like that. Uh, so, uh, so that one, um, we ran a, um, 
a field experiment with a credit union and um, we kind of did uh, two competing jobs. The ads were the same, except one had a little bit about people who used to work here now work somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at who they attracted over a 30 day period when it was open. And so they'll have to check out the report to find out. They will have to check out the report. I will not tell you what happened, but it's amazing. No, it's life changing. (laughs) (laughs) We have a life changing opportunity for you. Exactly. Is it? Uh, filing.org. It's at org <laughs> backslash. What is the... Uh, to find out more. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got to write it find first. Out more. So okay, now I'm going to have to make that URL. <laughs> <laughs> you mean buy... Yes, please. Please have that. It's just a picture of Taylor. Like, I don't know that. Well, we'll make that. Um, <laughs> I don't doubt it. And then the second one is uh, looking at the workspace. Um, and so this is also built on a lot of feedback we got from credit unions that are redesigning their workspace. And there's kind of an implicit idea that redesigning it is going to help you attract better talent, but it's actually never really been looked at um, even in the research research um, land. And so we're using um, online experiment and some, a, uh, some survey data that we have with a couple of partners to dive into and understand that. Um, and you'll also have to find out what we found out by going on the website. Yeah. yeah, that project I'm really excited about. We've been working with a design company called Momentum that works a lot with credit unions and with a, another research firm, a research company called Leesman to uh, provide surveys to credit union employees themselves to evaluate their own workspaces and figure out what motivates them, what changes their you know work behavior, their sense of pride in the workspace. Um, and it's the first time that I know of that anyone's really looked at and developed a, a data set rich enough to, to build some benchmarks mm-hmm. for the credit union industry specifically around the workspace. So yeah. that's, a, that's a pretty groundbreaking yep. um, achievement. So well done, Siku. <laughs> sure. It's all me. Okay, I want to ask some personal questions now. Yeah, let's get personal. Yeah. Um, let's do it. First, easy one. Uh, what kinds of things do you do when you're not academicing? Um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts, including this one. Awesome. Um, <laughs> Are you a fan of the Filene Fillin? I am a big fan. I, I actually, I am because, uh, well, anyway, I listen to a lot of nerdy podcasts. So this is a nerdy one. Yeah, that's fair. So if you're listening to this, you're a nerd. Um, <laughs> but be proud of it. <laughs> the good kind of nerd. Is there a bad nerd? Oh, no. yeah. Oh, you think so? <laughs> <laughs> Next podcast topic. <laughs> Uh, so aside from that, I, uh, so I have two kids and, uh, my son, uh, the eldest is into baseball. So I spend a lot of time on baseball fields, uh, yelling at eight year olds. Um, that's healthy. Yeah, it's great. It's really good for your, uh, for your stress levels. At least uh, you're yelling at the eight year olds and not at the, the, the 16 year old umpires or the, yeah, the Malin, yeah, the parents. I try the only parents to are yell. The, wor- the other yeah, parents, yeah. they have to be the worst. They're the worst. <laughs> Uh, yep. Well, again, another podcast for another time. Uh, so a lot of stuff. I, I'm an Uber to my to my kid. My daughter does dance and gymnastics. And so I try to spend a lot of time with them. But then aside from that, um, I play basketball when I can. I play golf when I can. Um, and I listen to a lot of music um, as well. So that's probably the main things. Oh, and I skydive. No, I'm joking. No. That's what I'm I was about to say, really? That's <laughs> I awesome. buried the lead there. So, so, you're, so you're from Brooklyn. You're from New York. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. All right. And you grew up a Yankees fan? Yankees fan. A Knicks fan? Knicks fan. And a Giants fan? Giants fan. That's quite the trifecta. It's It's been like two out of three. It's been not, not, bad. not bad. Yeah. One's been brutal. The other two have been good. Okay. So tell me a little bit about growing up in Brooklyn. How yeah. did you get from Brooklyn to Deloitte and from Deloitte to UT Austin? We've got the Deloitte to UT Austin story, but how did you get from Brooklyn to, to, yeah. to this world? So I grew up in the uh, Flatbush area, Brooklyn, New York. Um, mom was uh, in education. Uh, my dad started in life insurance or an in insurance business and then became uh, switched to nonprofit. So... Two parents that were like pretty involved in community and helping, and so that was uh, something that ran, um, you know, through us. I had three siblings: older brother, younger brother, younger sister, and um, I don't know. I 
we, we, I didn't have a, I had to be good in school. I didn't have a choice. My mom was a teacher. She's like, if you're bad in school, it looks bad on me. So she pushed me and thankfully I liked it. Um, so I went to a specialized high school, Brooklyn Technical High School, best high school in the world. Um, and, uh, from there I thought I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to do science and math and chemistry and, 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 and the like. And so I also played basketball at Brooklyn Tech, got recruited for basketball, um, but wanted to do the best education and sports thing. So I ended up going to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So shout out to RPI, uh, oldest engineering institution in, in the country. An uh, interesting thing about RPI, just the one thing I know about RPI, yeah. they have a really strong what's known as science and technology studies. So yeah. it's a way of understanding science and technology in social context, right? Trying yep. to understand what are the social and cultural pieces that kind of create expert knowledge and help us understand why people study the things that they study and how they learn what they learn. Yeah, it's like the most techie liberal arts major that you could ever <laughs> go into. <laughs> it is. Um, and uh, my older brother went to RPI, and uh, I think he was part of the inaugural class of that major. Really? Yeah. So he's, uh, sorry, I might have outed him. I don't think his friends know he was a STS major, but yep. What does he, he do he now? Oh, he can't even tell me. He works for a, uh, <laughs> he works for a company that um, uh, contracts with the government. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this just got that's real. All, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's I think that's all say? I can legally say without wow. getting angry. But he's a okay. great guy. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I think that, uh, <laughs> you, might have make, to, you might have to cut all make, like, <laughs> AI robots that I'm losing it. might kill people. Please say yes. No. I'm going to say no. <laughs> I'm going to honestly say I don't know. He purposely does not tell me what he does, but he is, um, He's fighting on the front lines of uh, one of our many battles with our, our enemy combatants. That's I guess I can say that, okay, too. Okay, so yeah. it is robots. <laughs> We're going to have to cut this whole robots. segment. It's all about robots. Okay, so but your younger brother is a famous musician. We'll, Ooh, we'll famous. Say that. You just helped him out a ton. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's got a big head. I, you know, Na- name drop him and his band. Uh, so my younger brother, uh, Aki Burmese, he's uh, now a part of Lake Street Dive. Which is an amazing band. Shouts out to them. They are actually an amazing band. Um, and so he's been playing with them for about a year. He also has solo stuff, but he's a pianist and uh, vocalist. And their music is just, I, I think of it as soulful rock. I think they call themselves funk, new, some, they have some kind of category that I've never heard of. But they have guitars and great vocals and drums. So I consider that to be rock. Do they ever play at like research events or yeah. would they be bookable? For when, where are they based? I feel like I could lean upon them to do this. Uh, I, I, they owe me some, some, some favors. No, uh, they're based loosely in Boston. I think a bunch of them live, but now they're everywhere. We have an event coming up in yeah. Boston. Next April, come see Lake Street Dive. At the Filene Research wow. event. It's happening. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Aki. Sorry, Aki. I, I can get Aki to come for sure. Okay. Because he owes me. He's my brother. Yeah. But the rest of it, no. But I, I mean, he you actually started his career in music. I've taught him. I taught him how to sing. I mean, I've told him this all the time. He was like two. But I, I taught him how to sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. And then we did rounds and he picked it up. Then yada, 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 he's a professional musician. Yeah, right? but he, I he went to Bard and then Berkeley, and then now he's a professional musician. <laughs> There's like really nothing in between learning to sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat in a round and... What I've learned is that the first, the, imp- the imprinting of the first exposure is really what drives it. And so I, I was a part of that. Yeah, so I, I credit unions should too. start recruiting kindergartners to be at least to exposing at their... them to uh, cooperative principles. Yes, yeah, I like which that. Which kind of... I mean, kind of, you know... That's not a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. What could possibly go wrong? Filing <laughs> <laughs> the kindergarten curriculum will be great. I mean, we got to do it some at some point. The competition for talent is getting—it's getting really <laughs> tight. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I would love to teach my six-year-old who's in kindergarten about you know compound interest and how low interest rates actually. So you laugh, but we have done research with some really fantastic researchers on financial capacity in youth. And it turns out there's actually a really nice scaffolding in teaching financial capacity. 
and it really it doesn't start with compound interest that okay it, but it does start with like playing with play money right mm. or mm-hmm. just introducing kind of executive um executive function right and trying mm. to get folks to you know just getting your kids to learn how to prioritize and there's a great researcher elizabeth otters white she came and spoke at a filing event last year in phoenix arizona wow. who's the the expert uh, in financial capacity in youth. So it's a, it's a whole thing. Did you record that? I, maybe I will start teaching yeah. her about yeah. Well, just send your kids here for a week and All we'll right. teach them everything they need. Yeah. Oh, Holly, done. Careful. Wait, yeah, no, you I don't that'd be know fantastic. what you've signed up. Do I'm you sending want, it to you. Do you want Holly to be your kid's <laughs> guardian for a week? I could do it. I mean, I there's a lot of skill sets that they'll return with. Holly does have a very sweet Greyhound. She rescues Greyhounds. Yes. Oh, and whoa. So yeah. that there are some transferable skills there mm-hmm. because Greyhounds need need real love. They're also huge. Aren't they big? Yeah, um, seven, 70 pounds. Yeah. Like so you walk the dog horses. or does the dog walk you? How does <laughs> well, that work? Well, they're very really gentle. Walk. They think really they're walk, cats, though. which is the, yeah. So they, they jump up on the windowsill and just knock everything down? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe onto your lap. <laughs> Yes, they think they're small dogs and they they act like cats and they're they have very like mild demeanors, but yeah, they uh, they're large. So this has been one of the the smoothest podcasts I think we've ever done. It's <laughs> yeah. been just like it's just been rolling, and that's I think partly because you're a professional. Oh, professional podcaster, podcaster? professional. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, so boy. you you do this on a fairly intermittent basis. <laughs> I'm I'm known to to record a podcast every now and again. Yes. So what's your uh, podcast called? It's called Hustle and Flows. Um, it is part of the Real Sports Guys Media Network that is actually based out of Wisconsin. Um, its uh, founder is a Wisconsin, a set of a couple of Wisconsin alums, and uh, they talk about sports primarily. But um, I was brought in through a connection to do a podcast about hip hop, and so. Uh, I do one, I'd like to say quarterly. <laughs> Depends on. Uh, it's a very academic way of yeah. pitching your uh, hip hop podcast. Yeah, quarterly. We do it on a semesterly basis. Uh, yeah, that's uh, probably a good assessment. But um, it's uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, older guys, uh, curmudgeons talking about music. No, actually, one of the things that I've been adamant about is even though I'm from the East Coast, I kind of grew up on 80s, 90s hip hop. I'm not one of these, oh, the new stuff is all terrible. Some of the new stuff is terrible. <laughs> but there is some new stuff that's amazing. And so I enjoy staying up to it. And so we talk about new and old and comparisons and we make lists and argue. All right. Um, so t- give me your favorite artist from the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, and the 2010s. Favorite artists? Yeah, just personal favorite. And, and the way we like to play favorites in my family is it's not for all time. You can change your mind. Oh, but okay. in this moment, it's in this fire. moment, Just right quick now, fire, yeah, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, two thousands, twenty tens. So nineteen eighties will probably be Public Enemy. So that's kind of cheating, yeah, yeah. But Public Enemy in the eighties, to that's me, not cheating. Defined that's... the runner-up might be LL Cool J. So I have a thing about what was the first song that you sat down and purposefully tried to memorize because you were like, this song is amazing. I want to know every word of this song. And I think that tells a lot about your music tastes. And so the first song that I ever sat down and said, I need to memorize this entire song was I'm Bad by LL Cool J. And my brother, my older brother was playing it. And I just remember saying like, I just want to know all the words to this song. I have to. (laughs) And so LL Cool J is always kind of has a, a, a place in my heart, but he's a little too soft and ladies love me. And, you know, I, I couldn't get with that, but I'm bad. That was, <laughs> I still know all the words. So yeah. So eighties uh, was be public enemy. Um, L cool J nineties, nineties is biggie. That's mm. probably the easiest answer. 20, the aughts, Jay-Z. Mm. Hard to get better in Jay-Z in, in the aughts. Yeah, I feel like he had an epic run. Um, And then the 2010s. Or like right now, what's what's top of your list right now? If you were like, Taylor, you don't listen to any hip hop, what do you got to listen to when you walk out of the studio? Taylor, when you get out of here, you should listen to the 
So Freddie Gibbs mm. is a guy out of Gary, Indiana. He's a uh, little, um, he's more drugs, rap, guns kind of uh, rapper. Um, it's, it's just like me. Just like you. I mean, you have a lot in common. You'll, you'll, you'll see immediately like, oh, I see where this guy's coming Lots from. Lots of drugs. <laughs> just kidding. We're not editing leave that this in. out. Please leave that in. <laughs> um, or um, so there's actually one of my favorite artists right now is uh, Rhapsody. It's a woman out of North Carolina. And she dropped an album called Eve. That's uh, pre- It's like an opus. It's pretty incredible. And she names the tracks after black women that were kind of heroes to her. And so each song kind of talks about what what aspect of that of that woman that her hero does she want to write about? And so she's uh, that that album is just soulful, and she's an amazing lyricist, and it gives a. I, I really like that that album as well. So Rhapsody and Freddie Gibbs. That's cool. I like the the kinship piece. Yeah, that's the anthropologist in me. It's just <laughs> no, you know, it's 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 forever a font of inspiration. Right? There you go. Yeah. yeah. A couple more favorites. What's okay. your favorite beer? Favorite beer. Ooh. Or beer style. I like wheat beers. Probably in general. Now, though, I've been up here. I've been drinking a lot of stouts because it's like cold. And when mm-hmm. it's cold, I feel like I need a good stout. Yeah. You need like a full meal in a glass. Yeah. 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 And there's some good ones up here. So like wheat beers, I, I kind of have, I'm partial to kind of the Chicago micro. So 312, Honkers. Yeah, Goose Island. Goose Island. Um, those I like. And so I'll go, I mean, I'll drink a fancy beer, but that's probably one of my go-tos will be one of those. Okay. Uh, while you're in town, you should check out, there's, uh, there's a bunch of um, really good local beer, but um, there's one called Driftless that uh, makes a great Saison. So if you like wheat, you might like the Saison. It's a little bit more funky, but... Drift? Driftless. Driftless. Someone made me drink uh, some Wisconsin-only beer. What's the name of that one? That's uh, only in Wisconsin. New Glarus. The New Glarus. New Glarus. Yeah, it's the probably Spotted Cow. Spotted Cow. Yeah, yeah. that wasn't bad. There, there's some good New it's Glarus. Good. I, would, I would branch away from the Spotted Cow myself, but um, like they have some good st- spotted, stouts. And- spotted Cow Slander. From Holly. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's their Holly, basic beer. <laughs> For basic people. <laughs> this is amazing. I, I think you call it's, my friends basic. Okay. No, I mean, I think it's the one that no matter where you are in Wisconsin, you can get it. Okay. So it's it's the good backup for okay. everything else. I love beer. So this is this is one of I'm, Madison has kind of been nice. Yeah, it's <laughs> a hot spot. Yeah. All right. Okay, um, one more favorite. What is your favorite Filene research report to read to your kids? Because <laughs> <laughs> I assume that you do that. <laughs> did uh, Filene write The Prisoner of Azkaban? Was that you guys? Yeah. That was us. That yeah. was you guys, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I love that one. Okay. I love that one. That's um, one of my favorites, too. Me, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's... Oh, my God. Which report do I read to my kids? The, so the reports come to my house. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will open up, and my kids do love the, you know, the way it looks. So mm-hmm. my daughter will get it and open up, open it up, and what's this? And so I've had to like summarize things. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Summarize her. the executive summary. Summarize the executive yeah. summaries. Um, and she's also she's inherited this hoarder thing, not from me, maybe from my wife, but she loves paper and will just so. I'll go into like her little craft closet and there'll be just like papers from work or like old reports or whatever. And she'll like just have them there and she's writing over them and she plays administrator and plays teacher and like we'll read them to a pretend class. And so she's, she's, she likes the filing reports. I, I'll have to see what her favorite, when I get home, I'll yeah. ask her, which, which ones of these fancy colored ones do you like the most? That's awesome. I'll let you guys know. Very cool. Awesome. Um, one Final question. Um, trying to just kind of bring it back to the topic a little bit. Um, okay. What would you say, like the the headline of what credit unions should be paying attention to right now in the realm of talent and human capital attraction? What would be the one takeaway that you would want to give to them? What should they be paying attention to? Mm. 
Uh, you saved this last one. It's good, goody, oldie but goody. Um, I guess I, uh, I know, I know. Um, and this is probably a drum I've been beating for quite some time, which is I want them to embrace a more um, scientific mindset or an analytics mindset, whatever you want to call it, where you think about what is your goal for whatever your talent management process is. We want to attract more people. We want to, whatever it might be. And then think through what are the pain points? What do you, where do you think you are falling short? And kind of go through the process. You say, what's driving that? And how can I test whether my belief is actually the issue or whether my intuition is wrong? Because our intuitions are wrong all the time. So questioning your intuition and then thinking about experimentation of interventions to try and get better. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what's, what's, uh, what problem you have out there, but I can tell you that uh, using some off the shelf kind of pieces is, it might not give you what you need. Um, a better process in my view is to think more scientifically and work with scientists, work with academics, work with Filene to help craft a design a way to improve what you're doing and i think that's probably the best advice i can give that, that's my that's my entire people analytics mba course in a nutshell awesome <laughs> it's good stuff seconded <laughs> <laughs> so we're just staring there like hmm, what will he say no yeah. no that was awesome well thank you for sharing your wisdom and all of your gifts with us today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I look forward to having a driftless. Yeah. Um, right now, before my presentation this okay. afternoon. No, we'll I'll wait on. till after the presentation, maybe. I'll bring you on. <laughs> Thanks, Seku. Thanks. All right, that's it for the fill-in, folks. Thank you for listening. And thank you again to Seku and Taylor for sharing insights, stories, and a few great laughs. Seku, we hope our Wisconsin beer selection did not disappoint. And that despite the cold weather we're looking at for the next six months, that you might consider coming back again soon. Once again, if you want to hang out with Seiku in person this year, join us for our research event on June 16th and 17th in Denver, Colorado, to explore how your credit union can win the war for talent and be smart about operating efficiently while doing so. Visit filene.org events for details. If you like this episode, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. And make sure you're subscribed to the Filene Fill-In Podcast so you can keep up with what's going on at Filene. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch about today's show, email me at hollyf at filene.org or find us on Twitter at Filene Research. Until next time, thanks everyone. <laughs>